Emily yesterday said, um, oh, tout, haven't heard of it. It's toot. Yes, and tooting. Just, you know, push the steering wheel, toot, toot. Here's the new she also made a fantastic uh, remark. She's talking about uh, Pagovian taxes and had a picture of Mr. Arthur Cecil Pigou on uh, Sir Arthur, Sir Arthur oh, my mistake, um, on, on her slides at the school talk we were doing. And she turns around and goes, rather dashing moustache. And then just <laughs> looked at me and realised that she'd made a cringe comment and very quickly moved on to it. Hello and welcome to The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Daniel Pryor and I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. And in this week's episode, I'm very pleased to be joined by Maxwell Marlow, the Development and Research Officer here at the Institute. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Max's upcoming paper, A Fair Shake, Reforming Taxis for the 21st Century. So I guess to start things off, Max, before we get into the actual topic of the paper itself and some of the recommendations, what really motivated you to to tackle this topic and to look again at taxi private hire regulation in the UK? Sure. Thanks, Dan. Um, the reason I wanted to look at this more substantially was because I am an avid user of taxis and private hire vehicles in London. And what I did realise over you know the end of the lockdown as we came out of it, things just weren't seeming up to scratch, especially in the taxi market. I saw a lot of black cab drivers using, you know, their mobile phones instead of using the knowledge. I saw, you know, many you know, empty taxis driving across London whilst Ubers were completely full up. And I was thinking, why is this? And how can we make this better? Mm. So I had a look at this after Steve Baker published his best practice. Well, at a suggestion to to um, contribute to best practice guidance in his constituency for their local for their local authority, licensing authority. So I decided to have a look at it, and uh, one thing led to another, and it ended up being a paper. So that's how we got here. Yeah, because I remember you uh, bringing up in the office a new government consultation, which is, which is mentioned in the actual paper, and it's looking to bring in an additional driving qualification for private hire vehicle drivers. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. So they wanted to get Ofqual to commission a um, new, uh, basically, BTEC in, in driving, and I just thought... That's crazy. Um, every, mm. Well, most people can drive a car, and that should really be the only requirement in order to drive a car professionally, along with a few other safeguarding issues, of course. But there is literally no evidence that shows that new qualifications, especially vocational ones, do contribute to either driver safety or driver efficiency. Well, let's get into some of the, the meat of the paper itself. And starting off with, you mentioned it in the, the intro there, the actual state of the taxi and, and private hire vehicle market in the UK and the ride sharing market as well. Because it seems like, at least according to the figures that you cite um, from the ONS, I believe, that whilst taxis over the past decade or so, uh, the number of vehicles and the number of drivers, in fact, has gone down in the region of about 20%. Uh, the number of private hire vehicle drivers, and that presumably includes ride-sharing drivers yeah. as well, um, has, has shot up by about 50%. Now, obviously, both categories were you know, in decline during the, the COVID lockdown period, unsurprisingly. But over that 10-year period, it seems like the market has, has shifted quite dramatically. What are the, some of the reasons that you think that might have contributed to that? Sure. Um I certainly think one of the big reasons is that the actual black cab industry is so hard to get into. Mm. I looked at some of the figures that were published kind of across uh, numerous sources, 
And we're looking in the region about £10,000 to train and do the knowledge, not to mention, and this is a, a little one for the, for the quiz we do, our, our own little knowledge, the fail rate on the first time you take the knowledge is 99%. Seriously? Seriously, 99%. <laughs> so how on That's earth absurd. do they expect people to really take a lot of time to qualify for this? Secondly, it takes about, what, four or five years to take and pass the knowledge overall. The only comparable job is, of course, medicine. That, that you know need you need that much training after any qualifications to do so we i was that's definitely one of the reasons going into it another reason of course is that taxis are just much more expensive than mm. ubers bolts or you know gets or lifts or whatever so that that's another thing and the reason why that is is just purely ease of access you can pick up a, a ride source vehicle on your phone very easily compared to having to wander around in the dead of night usually waving your hand around like a madman on the side of the road hoping to get a black cab these sorts of things are very important and they are really holding back the growth of the taxi market that needs to change so let's let's delve into the the knowledge side of this because i imagine you know in the paper you call and i think very correctly as someone who edited the paper and, and uh, agreed with this recommendation very much to, to basically abolish the knowledge or any sort of advanced topographical test as it's called because it's not just in london right that you have these sort of tests obviously the knowledge is the key one and the, the hardest to pass but when it comes to becoming a taxi driver in other regions of the uk i believe some licensing authorities also employ uh, these sort of things they certainly do so an advanced topographical test is recommended in a lot of licensing authorities and in the era we're in at the moment when we have google maps apple maps android maps and my favorite Waze, um, which is a specifically built um, driving app that allows uh, basically all of the users of Waze to continuously feed new information to the condition of roads um, into traffic areas into you know which which you know um which light's gone red, which has gone green, this sort of amazing catalaxy of information, which is all poured into one app, completely surpasses the knowledge in every single feasible way. Um, I was reading one of uh, the papers arguing in favour of the knowledge by Nick Ferrari from LBC, and he was saying the reason we should keep the knowledge, of course, is that if you're you know, late at night, you need to get to a pharmacy, but the one near your stop isn't open, the knowledge will ensure that they well, that, that it will be open. Basically, they'll drop you off there. I just thought that was crazy. You can access all of this information and more on your smartphone, which basically everybody has already. So that, that need for the knowledge or advanced topographical tests, I think, isn't really... It doesn't cut the mustard, as we'll say. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. That that example of, oh, what's the nearest pharmacy? Uh, the amount of times that I've checked where the nearest Tesco is on my local on my google maps or whatever is is you know that strikes me as absurd that that would be a good justification i i read a similar one when i think the gla a few years ago uh put out a paper or at least the conservatives uh and the gla put out a paper arguing for a similar sort of thing to to get rid of or at least vastly simplify the knowledge and their kind of point was well yeah it's not needed it's not necessary and in response uh, i think it's rory sutherland uh, the marketing guru wrote for the spectator saying that kind of trying to make a this is a, a valuable tradition and uh, is a, a good tourist attraction and we should be careful about changing established traditions and that's all very well and good but when we have the proof in front of us in the form of drivers who haven't taken the knowledge being perfectly adequate for mm -hmm. most people it seems absurd to me although it does raise the question I imagine you know if there are any taxi drivers listening to the podcast who have taken the knowledge uh, and if, if there are I'm so sorry uh, <laughs> but what do we do about people that have already 
you know, invested years of their life and, as you say, sums of thousands of pounds into doing so only for it to, you know, be be kind of ripped from under them. It's just this just a necessary consequence of uh, of reform and, and progress. And how do we how do we kind of ensure or do we ensure that taxis still have a, a separate and distinct role in the market here? Well, there are two ways we can kind of look at that. We can look at the kind of very cutting edge free market answer, which would be basically, well, what happened to the poor stable owners when the, you know, when the motor car came mm. around? They were just wiped out. That's a shame. But we can be a little bit smarter about our policy, of course. And I definitely think the knowledge, you know, isn't useless. It's just not a good way of dictating who should be a taxi driver and who shouldn't be. Taxi drivers can actually make, you know, some more money on the side by doing tours in their in their black cabs. The new London black cab, which is a great, which is a fantastic piece of engineering, has a big open, well, a big kind of plastic top, you mm. know, on the roof. It's spacious. People would actually like to get in there and listen and learn about London from inside the black cab. That's that's a perfectly valid service, especially because a lot of the black cabs, you know, business is with tourists and with people, you know, who are a little bit less concerned about getting from, you know, A to Z, you know, the cheapest, you know, cost. So that I think that's definitely something we can look at. So, but that's a, that's a very important thing. So we can really look at two ways of doing that. We basically pull the carpet from underneath their feet. Sorry, lads, it's a legacy, you know, system. Or we be a little bit smart about what taxis are allowed to do with the knowledge and we deregulate that area specifically. Yeah, and I imagine, you know, for plenty of people, especially for tourists visiting London or you know, non-residents, then seeing the black cab and, and knowing the history, the tradition associated with that, and also the fact that they have taken the knowledge, for some people, that still might be a distinguishing factor that makes them choose. And, and that's fantastic. And it's especially fantastic for people who can afford to do that, who can afford to make that choice, because I think getting on to another kind of issue that you focus on, on the paper, of course, the fares for taxis are in general, more expensive. Now, one of the reasons for this, uh, some would argue, and I think some justification is the the pricing and investment model of some ride sharing firms that isn't necessarily profit making in the short run, um, but perhaps profit making in the long run, they're more concerned with revenue and with gaining market share but it's not just that is it there are other factors that play into the taxi fares being higher it is you are right in that so i did speak to a taxi expert when writing this paper and he did say he kind of had this argument that actually the reason why black cabs are more expensive is because ride sharing companies are basically discounting their prices with with borrowed with equity basically and borrowed Mm. money that is quite valid but we have just seen uber make their first profit Mm. um, which i think is very important to to take into account here so those those subsidies will start rolling away as as revenues drive up, and so we'll definitely see. Another reason why taxi fares are so uh, so high is actually the way in which we calculate our regulations around fare about fare calculations. I think um, the thing is is that it differs from licensing authority to licensing authority, and we have over three hundred licensing authorities in the UK. So it's hard to I'll get onto that. It will it's hard to pinpoint down why you know each fare area is more expensive. So it's not just an overregulation of you know how um, how the fares calculated. That I mean it's literally no free market in fares when it comes to taxi vehicles. But it's also the overregulation of how you actually calculate the fares. That being um, you know maintenance costs, different insurance costs. Um, various things which are all kind of inflated by government, um, you know, putting its fingers in the pie, basically, creating a worse deal for consumers at the end of it. It always struck me as particularly absurd that we calculated fares in this way on the kind of regional or even local level by a licensing authority. Now, I can understand that you want to have different fares for different areas, you know, 
costs related to driving vary by different area, demand varies, average income varies. But the best way of doing that is with the price mechanism, not with a kind of board of people who decide every so often rather than in real time what the fare should be. And you're right, you, you touched on this, the kind of the level of duplication in all of these different licensing authorities oh, yeah. across the country. And I, th- I think your proposal in the paper, um, which is, is modeled, I believe, on an Australian style mm-hmm. system is to replace this kind of smorgasbord of various different licensing authorities with one single national licensing authority. Absolutely. Um, so I looked at some of the regulations that were available. James Button's Encyclopedia of UK current UK taxi regulations exceeds 3,000 pages. Wow. That Which, you know, that really is a doorstopper. But that's all of the regulations in the country surrounding, you know, taxis. I think that's crazy. And I think that needs to be completely centralised into one model, um, which is run out of the Department for Transport. So things are not just clearer, more transparent, but it also works on that economy of scale, whereby costs are brought down purely by higher efficiency um, standards being pushed through. I don't see any real argument as to why local authorities need to hold on to this this kind of monopoly over, over licensure. I think it should be the central government, which I know isn't a very neoliberal point, but I, <laughs> I, I digress. I mean, in some ways, back to the fair point of view, we have kind of fair and licensing committees, are, you know, in every licensing authority. These are completely susceptible to lobbying by, by black caps. And there's a fantastic bit of research put out by the um, by TFL about the about the price of affairs. And most well, about 90 percent of people said that taxi fares were too high. About 10 percent of taxi drivers said they were too high. That so that disparity really says quite a lot. And you make a really good living if you're a black cab driver. We're talking, talking 150,000 pounds a year around about which, you know, they argue they've earned because of the knowledge, but that's just not delivering a good deal for consumers. Presumably, another argument that would be made about fares and and the need to kind of keep them high is you need to attract drivers into the market, because as we said earlier on in this podcast, it does seem like taxi driver numbers are Mm. falling. But of course, the way that we attract taxi drivers into the market is by lowering the barriers to entry so not just as much as as raising fares and making it a a great living for the taxi drivers themselves there's plenty of people that would like to work and would be happy to charge lower fares but are not able to or are priced out through the excessive cost of regulation and licensing of course um we have this problem i mean it's kind of a two issues really within the tax industry demographically. Uh, one is that it is predominantly male. Um, there isn't much, there aren't many female taxi drivers and users, uh, listeners would have noticed this perhaps, you know, it's a very weird thing as to why that happens. Um, and another issue I would say is the, 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 the aging population of taxi drivers. Again, this is a very difficult to access market for young people. We don't really, we young people don't really have the money to or the time to be spending six or seven years out and about every single day learning the streets of London. So why on earth would I dedicate that to be a taxi driver when I could be doing so much so much else with that money? Um, so really bringing those costs down is really important. And the ease, the ease of access for ride sourcing and ride sharing um, companies really does show that if you bring the cost down, drivers will come, revenue will go up and you will have that consumer surplus. There was a fantastic um, bit of research done by Deloitte in Australia, which found that there's over 100 million Australian dollars have been, you know, driven through the market of consumer surplus because we have deregulated that, well, they have deregulated that space. It's really, really impressive. Why aren't we doing that ourselves? I think just coming back quickly to the, the sheer number of different licensing authorities, one thing that struck me here is that if you're a nationwide operator of ride sharing or, or 
PHVs, then the amount of time, the opportunity cost of the regulation time needed to get through and wade through all of these different applications on a local basis, right? That's such a huge amount of wasted resources that could be spent on improving the experience for riders, for drivers, um, various things. And I just can't see it as anything other than a purposeful barrier to entry and and trying to restrict competition in that way. Now, you might say it's important that we keep our, our local taxi industry local and that we we do this in order to keep out the, the bigger nationwide operators. But at the end of the day, they're the ones that consumers by and large, tend to go towards for good reason, I think. You know, they're, they're, they've got a good app. They've got a good service in various other ways. They're cheaper. To me, you're right. That consumer surplus point is so important. I, I, I agree. Um, and part, so, as I said, we have these 300 licensing authorities, and these are included in inner city areas. So I show in the paper, you know, cities like Liverpool and all of the boroughs there all have different licensing regulations, you know, depending on which basically high street you're on, which mm. I think is really wild. And we, we, you know, you can have that counter argument. You can say, well, look, we need to keep our taxis local. We need to keep our services local, keep the people out. But does it really make sense that police are pulling over drivers driving from one borough to another for having a having an improper license because one was given in another borough? It's a, it's a real concern raised by some of these larger companies. Um, and these are breakthrough companies. Something we do need to be careful of, and I think this is why having a proper deregulated reg- uh, licensing market is important, is to stop monopolies forming with companies like Uber and with Bolt. We don't want a repeat of the black cab situation. So keeping those regulations dynamic and forward-looking and with a very low barrier to entry encourages creative destruction, a creative mm. destruction within the, within the cab market within the private hire market that can just keep our, you know, our economies moving. Yeah, I can, I can imagine putting myself in the position of, let's say I'm someone that started up a, a local taxi firm and I'd like to expand to the city 20 miles down the road. And then I'd like to maybe expand to another city. And, you know, I'm an entrepreneurial person. I'm offering a unique service. I think I'm offering a better service than the current competitors in my local market. And in order to do that, I've got to wade through James Button's encyclopedia for X area or Y area of the UK just to find out what other different things I need to do. And I need to do that process over and over again, the more I want to expand. And, you know, for an industry that I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a strong case for uh, economies of scale in, in many cases with ride sharing operators, it makes sense that, you know, whenever you go to a new city and you want to take a car somewhere, then you know, you've got an app um, that you're used to that you've got a good rating on that you understand how to use, uh, and that you can just hop on and do that. And, and we're making that more and more difficult. But Moving on to another section of the paper that harks back to some some rather older ASI uh, research, mm-hmm. which looks at something called the paratransit light vehicle. This is basically a kind of uh, paper ride bus service, right? Basically. Similar to that. Yeah. So um, Madison Peary, who listeners will know as the, um, as the founder of ASI, along with Dr. Edmund Butler, wrote a paper in uh, 1980 called Paratransit Light Vehicle, which is basically the idea that... Um, a kind of minivan sort of uh, passenger setup is driven through uh, an area uh, on the way to people's offices or where they want to go. Um, costs, uh, so fees are lower, fares are lower, but um, they're, they're more expensive than, let's say, the bus or let's say the tube. And you know, it picks you up outside of your outside of your home and takes you to work and then back again in the evening. And in the meantime, operates kind of as a bus service. They're free to they're, they're free to access papers. There are um, all sorts of um, different amenities given to, to 
to passengers and that's um and that really works out quite well for um for many cities there are dozens of cities with these paratransit like vehicles in london we've tried to do that but it was cancelled because of covid um now there needs to be more marketing around it making sure it's available to, to people as you said earlier you've noticed on the city mapper that, that it was available um for a few well many many months ago before the before it came to an end um but with proper marketing and with proper regulatory with a proper like, regulatory environment you could definitely see an expansion of this model which is not just more efficient than a than a car but it's more comfortable for users it's a really nice area that the government should consider looking back into so the unique selling point for these is it's kind of midway between getting a taxi or a, a, an uber or a lyft or a bolt and getting say in london a, a tfl bus somewhere so it's something around what eight to 16 people that sort of absolute size and that's the the kind of unique selling point Mm. fares are kind of in between as well so you've got a bit more comfort a bit more quote-unquote privacy compared to say going on the bus um but also not the fares of the taxi absolutely so it keeps costs down keeps you know riders happy and it's an efficient piece of transport i mean remember you know at the end of the day, um, a lot of people using their personal cars are very, very inefficient. You can fit 30 people on a bus um, in the space of basically two, in the road space of two cars. Mm. It's very impressive. So we need to be thinking more about that when we think about our congestion problems, our pollution problems, mm. and the general you know, cost of living crisis we, are, we see ourselves in with high insurance rates and high petrol prices. You mentioning just there the efficient use of, of road space brings me to another point that you made in the paper, which is about the, the monopoly that, or the near monopoly that uh, taxis currently have on bus lanes, certainly in London and, and in many other cities in the UK, although I'm aware there are there are some kind of limited exceptions when it comes to uh, wheelchair capable private hire vehicles in certain cities. I think Liverpool is one of them, mm. for example. Do you think this is, is justified? What's the reasoning behind it? What's the justifications that you've heard? Well, the uh, the justification I've heard is that we basically have a very bad lobbying problem um, <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to our bus lanes. Well, the way I see it is, all of the everyone on the road is is basically paying to use the roads. I think it's unacceptable that a selected few black cab drivers are able to basically have somewhat of a monopoly over this. And I think it should be, it, we should have a one tier license where anyone with a TFL license to drive around is basically allowed to use these bus lanes for more efficient use of the area. Now, all on the other hand, which is what maybe some of our more left wing critics would say, let's just get all of those cars out of the out of the bus lane and keep it for buses and cyclists and emergency vehicles. I think that's also a fair enough thing, but I just do not like the special interests. I think it's it's, it's quite depraved, really, in a modern you know country where we have a, this very bizarre mon- uh, lobbying situation that precludes road access just because you've taken one test. Mm. I have to say, like thinking about the the kind of lobbying that's going on to try and protect the black cab industry. If I put myself in their shoes, from a, a personal, from an individual perspective, I can completely get why it is that they would do this, right? This is their livelihood. They've worked hard and they've spent long hours and a lot of money to try and get this this license, this, this golden ticket to earn a decent living from driving around and knowing the knowledge. And do you th- I, gu- I guess what I'm getting at is, do you think there's there's any way of having some sort of settlement on deregulation that would be accepted, at least in part, by the existing black cab industry? Or do you think that this is, by its very nature, because it's a case of an emerging technology displacing existing 
workers something that is going to have to be oppositional and, and confrontational? I think it is going to have to be oppositional and confrontational. Um, we have had incidences in the past of black cabs, you know, holding very disruptive protests in London mm. when Uber was given its license by, by the High Court. And I thought that for me really said everything you need to know about the black cab industry's mentality, which is they are Luddites. They're happy to throw a sabo in the kind of machinery of emerging technology within road transport. And they're not happy about this dynamic, you know, undermining of their of their business model. I again, I can completely sympathize. But look, what they've done is made a bad investment, which is they've put a lot of money and time and effort, you know, and that really is serious. I, I couldn't do the knowledge, I can tell you, but into into this what is now a completely redundant skill. It's a great shame. But unfortunately, we need to think as a country and as a democracy, who are we going to allow, you know, who, who are we going to allow to dictate to us where we can go? how much we can go for and um, and what economic potentials we can open up with that. Yeah, well said, well said. I think you're, you're absolutely right that it, it does, at least in part, need to be confrontational because at the end of the day, there's going to be people holding on to what they see as, as their right. The thing is, it's been, it's not just, it's lobbying incentivized by an active government decision, right? I don't think we, we need to put all the blame or, or indeed much of the blame at the door of the taxi drivers themselves, because they're just responding to incentives that were set up by politicians that thought that they knew how the industry would go for the next 100, 200 years and, and so on. I don't blame them. I don't blame them at all. But um, unfortunately, times have changed. And we need to, if we're going to be a real free market economy, one that grows and has respect for that creative destruction I mentioned earlier, then we need to have that lobbying basically removed. And we need to have a proper serious think about what the benefits of this very exclusive market is for Londoners. And I'll be honest, it's not looking too good. Well, we've got a few more minutes left. So there's a couple of things I'd like to cover just in the ending of this podcast. The first is in the paper, you talk about some of the kind of environmental challenges and opportunities when it comes to this industry, PHVs, taxis, ride sharing, etc. We've already seen it, kind of private initiatives from some of the companies already in this industry to encourage their drivers to switch to EVs, to electric Absolutely. vehicles. And and it's your belief that, that more could be done from the kind of the government side on this as well. How does that sit with, with free market views in general about, you know, subsidies and regulations around environmental concerns? Absolutely. Um, I, I can completely understand the more free market side of it, but we have to see that pollution is a terrible negative externality that really affects low income BAME areas the most. And that for me isn't being sold by the free market in many ways. It's a, it's a great shame. Now, part of the problem is that because we have this very restrictive PHV and ride sourcing market, it means that people just can't afford to switch over to an electric car. We also don't have the infrastructure in place for that transition to happen. We have this issue in the UK where you can get a subsidised electric rapid charge electric vehicle point on your driveway. Mm. But if you live in a city, what's the likelihood that you have a driveway? <laughs> yeah, very low. It's very low. So we need to so we need to have a think about um, having that subsidy moved up for anyone in the taxi business or private hire business um, and on their dry, on on their kind of street outside or in their local neighbourhood they need to have those those electric vehicle charging points in place 
not just that, but at least, you know, I think there was some research done um, recently that kind of showed that we should have no more than 25% uh, of those electric vehicle charging points in a postcode out of business, basically, at any one time. We need to keep a refreshing and rolling stock with good maintenance. Now, as I said earlier, it doesn't serve well on the kind of free marketing front, but I do think this is a public priority, given how often and how long these vehicles are on the road for, how much pollution they're creating. That sort of stuff is very important that we have a proper talk about and have some proper public discussions and public money put towards moving our private hire, our ride source and our taxi fleet completely, you know, electric by, you know, 2030, 2035. Yeah, I think the way that I see this is that there's there's a separate conversation to be had about how we should encourage people to switch to greener technologies and reduce pollution and really capture those negative externalities of pollution that you mention. Uh, and there are various ways of doing that. You can, and I think the ASI traditionally has opted for as, as broad based as possible, a carbon tax, redistribute the revenues to those on low incomes to make sure it's not regressive uh, and kind of let the market do the work. But I think given that in the UK, at least, we do have this commitment to, to basically ban non-electric cars, to, to ban petrol, diesel cars um, in the next decade or so, I believe. They're, they're constantly changing the target, but I think it is you know, 2030, 2035, yeah, yeah. yeah, something like that. They, they moved it forward recently. Given that we have that target um, and that that doesn't seem to be going away, what's the most effective way of moving towards that? And where can you get the most bang for your buck? And you're absolutely right that it's the cars that are on the road all the time because that's literally their job, right? Yes. It's the taxis, the PHVs and the ride-sharing vehicles. So if you're going to concentrate your resources in a way that's most effective, I think this is a really good example of where that's definitely the case. Mm. Uh, and finally, I think just, just to conclude, um, on the issue of safety, because this is something that you also bring up in the paper. The government have already decided, and it hasn't come in yet, but they're, they're legislated to bring in mandatory passenger-facing CCTV, and that's for, for all um, all vehicles in, in this general market, yeah. right? How do we make that easier? Are there any examples of, of places in the UK that have done this to make it easier? There are. So there is the case, I believe, of Southampton, which has a number of licensed or kind of recommended passenger-facing CCTV mm. cameras and their, um, uh, their distributors and people can install them. They have a, a clear list online. And against the cost of these, it's about £450 per unit, they can claim back against uh, local taxes. Right. And they have this arrangement with HMRC to do this. This is a fantastic model. I really do believe that having passenger-facing CCTV is critical for passenger safety, and it's something that should be expected in every private hire vehicle and every tax and every ride source vehicle, purely in the interest of preventing crime and preventing these sorts of problems. But having that kind of similar to the factory tax in many ways, that kind of ca that discountable capital expenditure, which I think is going to be really useful for ensuring safety is not just to is ensuring safety is cheap, but also is working in the in the interest of the taxi driver as well. Mm. It's, it's funny, just I, I said we were going to finish up, but there's just a a turn of phrase that you used there that, that really cracked me up and it, you started by saying uh that it was it was something was licensed so southampton licensed or you know mm -hmm. said that you must use these cctv cameras yeah but then changed to recommended and this is something yes. that you also mentioned in the paper I did right mention this in the paper licensing authorities are kind of very weird in, in their wording um and you know as any lawyer will tell you i'm definitely not one but um as a lawyer will tell you there's quite a lot of difference between recommended 
and uh, mandatory. Mm. And some licensing officers like to blur the lines on those two. As we we did some consultation on the papers, you know, as you'll recall, Dan, and they and the people we spoke to definitely did say licensing authorities do like to sometimes move the words around a bit and make life just a little bit more difficult mm. just to make sure that they can, you know, keep irritating the, the, the licensees a little bit more. Uh, but no, I think that the difference between um, recommended and mandatory really needs to be dealt with. And as I recommend in the paper, we need to have a much more transparent, much shorter, and much easier enforced licensing system within the UK. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for on this episode of The Pinder Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to be joined by my friend, colleague and upcoming report author, Maxwell Marlow, the Development and Research Officer here at the Institute. If you like what you've heard, then please do comment and subscribe on your chosen podcast provider. And we'll be sure to join you next week for yet more banter analysis. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.